Section 4 of Inca Land. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Inca Land by Hiram Bingham. Chapter 2 Climbing Corapuna. Part 2. The next morning we had very little appetite, no ambition and a miserable sense of malaise and great fatigue. There was nothing for it but to shoulder our packs, arrange our tump lines, and proceed with the same steady drudgery, now a little harder than the day before. We broke camp at half-past seven, and by noon had reached an altitude of about twenty thousand feet on a snowfield within a mile of the saddle between the great truncated peak and the rest of the range. It looked possible to reach the summit in one more day's climb from here. The aneroids now differed by over five hundred feet. Leaving me to pitch the tent, the others went back to the cache to bring up some supplies. Due to the fact that we were carrying loads twice as heavy as those which Tucker and Coeo had first brought up, we had not passed their cache until today. By the time my companions appeared again, I was so completely rested that I marveled at the snail-like pace they made over the nearly level snowfield. It seemed incredible that they should find it necessary to rest four times after they were within one hundred yards of the camp. We were none of us hungry that evening. We craved sweet tea. Before turning in for the night, we took the trouble to melt snow and make a pot full of tea which could be warmed up the first thing in the morning we passed another very bad night. The thermometer registered seven degrees Fahrenheit, but we did not suffer from the cold. In fact, when you stow away four men on the floor of a seven-by-seven seven tent, they are obliged to sleep so close together as to keep warm. Furthermore, each man had an eiderdown sleeping bag, blankets, and plenty of heavy clothes and sweaters. We did, however, suffer from soroche, violent whooping cough assailed us at frequent intervals none of us slept much i amused myself by counting my pulse occasionally only to find that it persistently refused to go below one twenty and if i moved would jump to one thirty five i don't know where it went on the actual climb so far as i could determine it did not go below one twenty for four days and nights on the morning of October 15th, we got up at three o'clock. Hot, sweet tea was the one thing we all craved. The teapot was found to be frozen solid, although it had been hung up in the tent. It took an hour to thaw, and the tea was just warm enough for practical purposes when I made an awkward move in the crowded tent and kicked over the teapot. Never did men keep their tempers better under more aggravating circumstances. Not a word of reproach or indignation greeted my clumsy accident, although poor Corporal Gomara, who was lying on the downside of the tent, had to beat a hasty retreat into the colder, but somewhat drier, weather outside. My clumsiness necessitated a delay of nearly an hour in starting. While we were melting more frozen snow and remaking the tea, we warmed up some pea soup and Irish stew. Tucker and I managed to eat a little. Coelho and Gamara had no stomach for anything but tea. We decided to leave the Tucker tent at the 20,000-foot level 
together with most of our outfit and provisions. From here to the top we were to carry only such things as were absolutely necessary. They included the mummery tent with pegs and poles, the mountain mercurial barometer, the two Watkins aneroids, the hypsometer, a pair of Zeiss glasses, two 3A Kodaks, six films, a sling psychrometer, a prismatic compass and clinometer, a Stanley pocket level, an 80-foot red strand mountain rope, three ice axes, a seven-foot flagpole, an American flag, and a Yale flag. In order to avoid disaster in case of storm, we also carried four of Silver's self-heating cans of Irish stew and mock turtle soup, a cake of chocolate, and eight hardtack, besides raisins and cubes of sugar in our pockets. Our loads weighed about twenty pounds each. To our great satisfaction and relief, the weather continued fine, and there was very little wind. On the preceding afternoon, the snow had been so soft one frequently went in over one's knees, but now everything was frozen hard. We left camp at five o'clock. It was still dark. The great dome of Coropuna loomed up on our left, cut off from direct attack by gigantic icefalls. To reach it, we must first surmount the saddle on the main ridge. From there, an apparently unbroken slope extended to the top. Our progress was distressingly slow, even with the light loads. When we reached the saddle, there came a painful surprise. To the north of us loomed a great snowy cone, the peak which we had at first noticed from the Chuquibamba Calvario. Now it actually looked higher than the dome we were about to climb. From the Siwas Desert, eighty miles away, the dome had certainly seemed to be the highest point. So we stuck to our task, although constantly facing the possibility that our painful labors might be in vain, and that, eventually, this north peak would prove to be higher. We began to doubt whether we should have strength enough for both. Loss of sleep, soroche, and lack of appetite were rapidly undermining our endurance. The last slope had an inclination of thirty degrees. We should have had to cut steps with our ice axes all the way up, had it not been for our snow creepers, which worked splendidly. As it was, not more than a dozen or fifteen steps actually had to be cut, even in the steepest part. Tucker was first on the rope, I was second, Coeo third, and Gamara brought up the rear. We were not a very gay party. The high altitude was sapping all our ambition. I found that an occasional lump of sugar acted as the best rapid restorative to sagging spirits. It was astonishing how quickly the carbon in the sugar was absorbed by the system and came to the relief of smoldering bodily fires. A single cube gave new strength and vigor for several minutes. Of course, one could not eat sugar without limit, but it did help to tide over difficult places. We zigzagged slowly up, hour after hour, alternately resting and climbing, until we were about to reach what seemed to be the top, obviously, alas, not as high as our enemy to the north. Just then, Tucker gave a great shout. The rest of us were too much out of breath to ask him why he was wasting his strength shouting. When at last we painfully came to the edge of what looked like the summit, we saw the cause of his joy. There, immediately ahead of us, 
lay another slope three hundred feet higher than where we were standing it may seem strange that in our weakened condition we should have been glad to find that we had three hundred feet more to climb remember however that all the morning we had been gazing with dread at that aggravating north peak whenever we had had a moment to give to the consideration of anything but the immediate difficulties of our climb our hearts had sunk within us at the thought that possibly after all we might find the north peak higher the fact that there lay before us another three hundred feet which would undoubtedly take us above the highest point of that aggravating north peak was so very much the less of two possible evils that we understood tucker's shout yet none of us was lusty enough to echo it with faint smiles and renewed courage we pegged along resting on our ice axes as usual every twenty-five steps until at last at half-past eleven after six hours and a half of climbing from the twenty thousand foot camp we reached the culminating point of Coropuna. as we approached it tucker although naturally much elated at having successfully engineered the first ascent of this great mountain stopped and with extraordinary courtesy and self-abnegation smilingly motioned me to go ahead in order that the director of the expedition might be actually the first person to reach the culminating point in order to appreciate how great a sacrifice he was willing to make it should be stated that his willingness to come on the expedition was due chiefly to a fondness for mountain climbing and his desire to add coropuna to his sheaf of victories greatly as i appreciated his kindness in making way for me i could only acquiesce in so far as to continue the climb by his side we reached the top together and sank down to rest and look about the truncated summit is an oval-shaped snowfield, almost flat, having an area of nearly half an acre, about 100 feet north and south, and 175 feet east and west. If it once were, as we suppose, a volcanic crater, the pit had long since been filled up with snow and ice. There were no rocks to be seen on the rim, only the hard crust of the glistening white surface. The view from the top was desolate in the extreme. We were in the midst of a great volcanic desert dotted with isolated peaks covered with snow and occasional glaciers. Not an atom of green was to be seen anywhere. Apparently we stood on top of a dead world. Mountain climbers in the Andes have frequently spoken of seeing condors at great altitudes. We saw none. Northwest, twenty miles away across the pampa colorada a reddish desert rose snow-capped solimana in the other direction we looked along the range of coropuna itself several of the lesser peaks being only a few hundred feet below our elevation far to the southwest we imagined we could see the faint blue of the pacific ocean but it was very dim my father was an ardent mountain climber glorying not only in the difficulties of the ascent, but particularly in the satisfaction coming from the magnificent view to be obtained at the top. His zeal had led him once, in winter, to ascend the highest peak in the Pacific, Mauna Kea, on Hawaii. He taught me as a boy to be fond of climbing the mountain of Oahu and Maui, 
and to be appreciative of the views which could be obtained by such expenditure of effort yet now i could not take the least interest or pleasure in the view from the top of coropuna nor could my companions no sense of satisfaction in having attained a difficult objective cheered us up we all felt greatly depressed and said little although gamara asked for his bonus and regarded the gold coins with grim complacency after we had rested a while we began to take observations unslinging the aneroid which i had been carrying i found to my surprise and dismay that the needle showed a height of only twenty one thousand five hundred twenty five feet above sea level tucker's aneroid read more than a thousand feet higher twenty two thousand five hundred fifty feet but even this felt short of raimondi's estimate of twenty two thousand seven hundred seventy five feet and considerably below bandolier's twenty three thousand feet this was a keen disappointment for we had hoped that the aneroids would at least show a margin over the altitude of mount aconcagua twenty two thousand seven hundred sixty three feet this discovery served to dampen our spirits still further we took what comfort we could from the fact that the aneroids which had checked each other perfectly up to seventeen thousand feet were now so obviously untrustworthy we could only hope that both might prove to be inaccurate as actually happened and that both might now be reading too low anyhow the north peak did look lower than we were to satisfy any doubts on this subject tucker took the wooden box in which we had brought the hypsometer laid it on the snow leveled it up carefully with the stanley pocket level and took a squint over it toward the north peak he smiled and said nothing so each of us in turn lay down in the snow and took a squint it was all right we were at least two hundred fifty feet higher than that aggravating peak we were also four hundred fifty feet higher than the east peak of coropuna and a thousand feet higher than any other mountain in sight at any rate we should not have to call upon our fast ebbing strength for any more hard climbs in the immediate future after arriving at this satisfactory conclusion we pitched the little mummery tent set up the tripod for the mercurial barometer arranged the boiling-point thermometer with its apparatus and with the aid of kodaks and notebooks proceeded to take as many observations as possible in the next four hours at two o'clock we read the mercurial knowing that at the same hour readings were being made by watkins at the base camp and by the harvard astronomers in the observatory at arequipa the barometer was suspended from a tripod set up in the shade of the tent the mercury which at sea level often stands at thirty-one inches now stood at thirteen point eight three eight inches the temperature of the thermometer on the barometer was exactly plus thirty-two degrees fahrenheit at the same time inside the tent we got the water to boiling and took a reading with the hypsometer water boils at sea level at a temperature of two hundred twelve degrees fahrenheit here it boiled at one hundred seventy four degrees fahrenheit after taking the reading we greedily drank the water which had been heated for the hypsometer we were thirsty enough to have drunk five times as much we were not hungry and made no use of our provisions except a few raisins some sugar and chocolate
after completing our observations we fastened the little tent as securely as possible banking the snow around it and left it on top first having placed in it one of the appalachian mountain club's brass record cylinders in which we had sealed the yale flag a contemporary map of peru and two brief statements regarding the ascent the american flag was left flying from a nine-foot pole which we planted at the northwest rim of the dome where it could be seen from the road to cotahuasi here mr casimir watkins saw it a week later and Dr. Isaiah Bauman two weeks later, when Chief Topographer Hendrickson arrived three weeks later to make his survey, it had disappeared. Probably a severe storm had blown it over and buried it in the snow. We left the summit at three o'clock and arrived at the 20,000-foot camp two hours and 15 minutes later. The first part of the way down to the saddle we attempted a glissade. Then the slope grew steeper and we got up too much speed for comfort so we finally had to be content with a slower method of locomotion. That night there was very little wind. Mountain climbers have more to fear from excessively high winds than almost any other cause. We were very lucky. Nothing occurred to interfere with the best progress we were physically capable of making. It turned out that we did not need to have brought so many supplies with us. In fact, it is an open question whether our acute mountain sickness would have permitted us to outlast a long storm or left us enough appetite to use the provisions although one does get accustomed to high altitudes we felt very doubtful no one in the western hemisphere had ever made night camps at twenty thousand feet or pitched a tent as high as the summit of coropuna the severity of mountain sickness differs greatly in different localities apparently not depending entirely on the altitude i do not know how long we could have stood it it is difficult to believe that with strength enough to achieve the climb we should have felt as weak and ill as we did that night although we were very weary none of us slept much the violent whooping cough continued and all of us were nauseated again in the morning we felt so badly and were able to take so little nourishment that it was determined to get to a lower altitude as fast as possible to lighten our loads we left behind some of our supplies we broke camp at nine twenty eighteen minutes later without having to rest the cache was reached and the few remnants were picked up although many things had been abandoned our loads seemed heavier than ever we had some difficulty in negotiating the crevasses, but Gamara was the only one actually to fall in, and he was easily pulled out again. About noon we heard a faint halloo, and finally made out two animated specks far down the mountainside. The effect of again seeing somebody from the outside world was rather curious. I had a choking sensation. Tucker, who led the way, told me long afterward that he could not keep the tears from running down his cheeks, although we did not see it at the time. The specks turned out to be Watkins and an Indian boy, who came up as high as was safe without ropes or crampons, and relieved us of some weight. The base camp was reached at half-past twelve. One of the first things Tucker did on returning was to weigh all the packs. To my surprise and disgust, I learned that, on the way down, Tucker, 
afraid that some of us would collapse, had carried sixty-one pounds, and Gamara sixty-four, while he had given me only thirty-one pounds, and the same to Kueo. This, of course, does not include the weight of our ice creepers, axes, or rope. The next day all of us felt very tired and drowsy. In fact, I was almost overcome with inertia. It was a fearful task even to lift one's hand. The sun had burned our faces terribly. Our lips were painfully swollen. We coughed and whooped. It seemed best to make every effort to get back to a still lower altitude for the mules. So we broke camp, got the loads ready without waiting, put our sleeping bags and blankets on our backs, and went rapidly down to the Indians' huts. Immediately our malaise left us. We felt physically stronger. We took deep breaths, as though we had gotten back to sea level. There was no sensation of oppression on the chest, yet we were still actually higher than the top of Pike's Peak. We could move rapidly about without getting out of breath. The aggravating whooping cough left us, and our appetites returned. To be sure, we still suffered from the effects of snow and sun, on the ascent I had been very thirsty and foolishly had allowed myself to eat a considerable amount of snow. As a result, my tongue was now so extremely sensitive that pieces of soda biscuit tasted like broken glass. Corporal Gamara, who had been unwilling to keep his snow glasses always in place and thought to relieve his eyes by frequently dispensing with them, now suffered from partial snow blindness. The rest of us were spared any inflammation of the eyes. There followed two days of resting and waiting. Then the smiling arrieros, surprised and delighted at seeing us alive again after our adventure with Corapuna, arrived with our mules. The Tejadas gave us hearty embraces, and promptly went off up to the snow line to get the loads. The next day we returned to Chuquibamba. In November, Chief Topographer Hendrickson completed his survey and found the latitude of Coropuna to be 15 degrees 31 minutes south and the longitude to be 72 degrees 42 minutes 40 seconds west of Greenwich. He computed its altitude to be 21,703 feet above sea level. The result of comparing the readings of our mercurial barometer taken at the summit with the simultaneous readings taken at Arequipa gave practically the same figures. There was less than sixty feet difference between the two. Although Corapuna proves to be thirteen hundred feet lower than Bandelier's estimate, and a thousand feet lower than the highest mountain in South America, still it is a thousand feet higher than the highest mountain in North America. While we were glad we were the first to reach the top, we all agreed we would never do it again. End of section 4